0: Well, our scripture reading for our sermon this morning is Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 15. Again, Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 15, focusing in especially on verses 7 through 15. Uh, Though, um, again, I'm going to read from verse 1 as I will be referring back to verses 1 through 6 throughout the sermon for context. Uh, This is going to be, I I guess since I'm preaching two Sundays this month, this is going to be the beginning of a a little mini-series, just a three-part series. Um, I'll be preaching two sermons on the last Lord's Day of the month. Um, But what we're going to be looking at uh, through these three sermons through Galatians 5 is uh, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification by faith alone and the doctrine of sanctification. And we're going to be looking at the practical implications of both of those doctrines. Um, Here in the beginning of the chapter this week, we are going to be um, considering the implications of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And before we read this, just since we are... uh, Beginning here towards the end of the book, uh, for just context, what chapter 5 is, is a a time of transition in the epistle to the Galatians. Um, As I'm sure many of you know, in most of Paul's letters, he divides his letters up really into two portions. He's got the introductory greeting, but then the the first portion is usually a, a summary of doctrine, and then towards the end of his letters, he usually has uh, an exhortation on, okay, so how shall we now live in light of the doctrine that he's laid out? You see that, for example, in the book of Romans that Pastor Keener's been going through. Chapters 1 through 11 are the doctrinal portion of the book of Romans, and then 12 through 16 is the practical portion of the book of Romans. It's very similar in Galatians. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 uh, is the doctrinal section. Chapter uh, 5 and then chapter 6 is the practical portion. And again, just for context, what's the focus of this book is again very similar to Romans, it's the doctrine of justification as Paul is defending that doctrine in confronting the Judaizers who had infiltrated the church in Galatia. Uh, They were preaching a message of works righteousness. And so in this book, uh, Paul's been refuting these Judaizers and defending justification by faith alone. And again, here he is now summarizing his argument and encouraging them in these things and then fleshing out the practical implications. So picking it up at verse 1, hear now the word of God. Paul writes, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Thus far for the reading of God's holy and inspired word, may he bless it to us. An idea that seems to keep resurfacing in the modern church is the whole idea that Christianity is a life rather than a doctrine. In other words, uh, the idea is that it's more important, what's more important is living in a certain way uh, than Uh, It is to believe in certain things or to hold to certain doctrines. Uh, Some familiar manifestations of this way of thinking, uh, one that I can think of is the old WWJD bracelets that people used to wear in the 90's, right? Uh, The implication there is that uh, Christianity was more about uh, what did Jesus do and therefore what should I do than it is about what Jesus did and what we are to believe Uh, Again, we have this overall sentiment that Christianity is about deeds, not creeds. And you've seen that idea again resurface again and again in different ways. If some of you have studied church history, especially the history of the modern church, you'll know uh, that this kind of thinking was largely what was behind theological liberalism. Again, they taught that Christianity um, is a life, rather than a doctrine. And while I'm sure that most of us formally reject this idea, I'm sure we all do, yet in our hyper-partisan environment, and in our environment of constant culture wars, it can certainly be tempting to define orthodoxy around moral stances and around moral actions. And again, this is something that can come at the church from both the left and the right. You see, we can easily find ourselves making Christianity more about what we do than what it is that we believe. And as Paul continually emphasizes in this epistle of Galatians as well as in the book of Romans that Pastor Keener's been going through uh, in both books uh, Paul emphasizes that, that Christianity is actually first and foremost again about what we believe uh, not primarily about what we do. We believe that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, And our works simply don't factor into that equation. And again, in in both Romans and here in Galatians, as I alluded to before we read the text, Paul is responding um, to a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers, who were essentially, we we can summarize them as being uh, a group of Christian Pharisees, uh, who, like the Pharisees, uh, denied and or more accurately diluted the doctrine of justification by faith alone instead uh, they taught that we are in the covenant yes by grace but that we stay in by our works and the works that we are to perform according to them were the works of the ceremonial law as exemplified by their teaching that the gentiles needed to be circumcised and you saw those allusions in, in the Scripture reading. And again, in both books, both in Romans and here in Galatians, uh, Paul is laboring to remind the church that we are in by grace through faith and that we stay in by grace through our God-given faith. And so not only is the ceremonial law obsolete, but again, works in general, don't factor into our justification before God. However, as we are going to see this morning, this doesn't mean that we divorce faith in the gospel from a life of obedience. In fact, if one has truly been united to Christ by faith, they will indeed live a life that reflects Christ by grace, They will live a sanctified life. As Paul says there in verse 6 In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, not our works, whether it's ceremonial works or other works, but faith working through love. And so this morning, as we zero in, especially there on verses 7 through 15. Uh, we will see that Paul is reinforcing the importance of holding to the purity of the gospel, the purity of the gospel of justification by faith alone, while also admonishing us to live a life that is in accordance with the law of God. And in doing so here, he teaches us uh, that because we are rooted in Christ by faith That we must therefore reject two errors. uh, The error of legalism and the error of antinomianism. We must reject a life of trying to establish our own righteousness before God by our works. And we must also reject a life of licentiousness. Or of thinking that, well, because God has been gracious to us, that we can live in any way that we want or that we can be at peace with our sin. Both of these errors are rejected by Paul as he is reinforcing the doctrine of justification and its practical implications here. And so first then, let's examine what Paul says about that first error, the error of legalism or neonomianism, as some people call it. The error of legalism or neonomianism. In verses 7-9, through nine, Paul writes and says this, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice here in this statement Uh, is that Paul says, as he's admonishing them, he says, you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Uh, Now, this language here, especially in the Greek, has allusions to the foot races that were common in the Roman arenas. In many ways, they were comparable to uh, the track races that we have in our day. Uh, sprinting or or marathon races. Most likely, uh, he's referring to what we would call marathon races. And and so Paul here is comparing then the Christian life to a race, to a marathon. And and when you consider this verse in context, uh, the sense here is that uh, trusting in Christ alone for salvation is not something that we do only at the beginning of our walk. But it's something that we have to continue doing. We must fight the good fight of faith, as he says in another place. The walk of faith is a race that we need to persevere in. Back in verses 4 and 5, he said this admonishing them. He said, warning about this teaching that they had succumbed to. He says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That's language of perseverance. And then again he says in verse 7, you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Again, the idea is that we don't begin the Christian life by faith and then Continue on into something else, like a a life focused on works, as the Judaizers taught. Uh, No, our walk begins and ends solely through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, as Paul warns there, we can easily get sidetracked from this calling, can't we? As Paul says to the Galatians here, they, they were hindered from obeying the truth, Or from being persuaded of the truth, which is more the sense of that word obey in the Greek. They were sidetracked into a life of works righteousness, though they began in the faith. So how did this happen to them? How did this come about? Well, as Paul goes on to imply, it happened to them very subtly. As he says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So that there is a reference to the teachings of these Judaizers with their works righteousness scheme. And Paul comparing the subtlety of their doctrine to leaven, uh, this would have been a relevant metaphor as this would have been a familiar image to Jewish Christians. Of course, each year the the Jews were commanded to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was a feast to commemorate the wilderness wanderings. So likewise, at the Passover, they were commanded to eat unleavened bread and to also uh, engage in this cleansing ritual where they would uh, remove all leaven from their houses. And you see, this was understood by the Jews to be a picture of cleansing, of purity, and of how easily Uh, impurity can enter into our lives. And so what Paul is implying with this metaphor is that this system of works righteousness is the impurity that they were to be on guard for. And that even just a few Judaizers, or even just a little bit of their teachings in their midst would be enough to spread and to then hinder them in their persuasion of the truth. Again, as he says there, a little leaven leavens the lump. And this connection between uh, the image of leaven and false teaching, uh, remember, uh, especially legalistic false teaching, Uh, this is something that Paul is getting from Jesus himself. As Jesus said in Matthew 16.11, he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, And as Matthew goes on to record, then they, that is the apostles, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, all false teaching is like leaven. It's like a mental virus. right? We have that nomenclature in our culture right now of a mind virus. Elon Musk talks about the woke mind virus. Right? That, that's maybe the latest metaphor we have to what Paul is getting at here with leaven. It can subtly affect how you think so that it spreads through the whole body of your faith and then begins to hinder you, as Paul says, making you spiritually sick so that you drop out of the race. And the heresy of legalism or neo nomianism is one that can Easily grab a hold of us in this way, just as any false way of thinking can. Now, to just uh, define our terms here, real quick uh, <coughs> legalism or neo-nomianism is the belief that the gospel, what it is, is that it simply offers us an uh, easier way to keep the law. Hence why it's called neo-nomianism. Uh, that means new law. And while there are many different versions of neo-Nomianism, they will all boil down in the end to one of two things: either that the instrument or the ground of your justification is tied to something that you perform. Uh, again, whereas the biblical doctrine is that uh, faith alone is the sole instrument of justification, and the work of Christ alone is likewise the sole ground of your justification. This is why we say that we are uh, justified uh, by faith alone and Christ alone. The instrument and the ground. And so legalism either mixes our works in with the work of Christ, so that it's Jesus plus our works, or it mixes our works in with our faith, so that it becomes faith plus works. Again, you're diluting either the ground Or the instrument of justification with our works. And it could be both. And again, these errors can be very subtle at times. As we learned in the past months, um, back in the summer and in the winter, uh, this is largely what the infamous federal vision is about. It's not just a sacramental system. A lot of people think of the Pado Communion and the the, the the baptismal regeneration, but more consistently, what you find across all of those teachers is a system of neo-nomianism, especially when men like Doug Wilson blend faith together with works of obedience, saying that we are justified by an obedient faith, so that it's a working faith that justifies us, not a resting faith that justifies us. And think about it, what's the end result of this? when this truly infects our thinking. Well, the end result is that our justification becomes tied to an inward gaze. To to our repentance and to our obedience, rather to an outward gaze towards Christ, which is what faith is. So while yes, repentance and obedience are necessary as consequences of our salvation, Yet this subtle change in doctrine where repentance and obedience or affections, as John Piper is now teaching, becomes elements of faith rather than the fruits of faith. That subtle change ends up hindering faith by turning our eyes away from Christ and back to ourselves. And if we are turned away from Christ to focus on ourselves, then we have no hope, do we? Because when we look within, we see all manner of sin. And we see much grounds within ourselves for discouragement. This is why the Puritans used to always emphasize that uh, the ground of our assurance must first start by looking to the promises of God. Uh, Though they did say, rightfully so, that we should look for evidences of true faith within us, uh, yet they would say, even when you see that evidence... Look outside of yourself to the promises of God. Look outside of yourself to Jesus Christ and give Him the glory and the praise for working in you in that way. You see, at the end of the day, all forms of legalism, they all end up turning our eyes away from Christ so that we become fixated on ourselves. Instead of trusting in the crucified and risen flesh of Jesus Christ, and instead of thus crucifying our flesh and crucifying our trust in the flesh in union with Him, legalism causes us to find our life in the flesh once again. And that's why it's so appealing, isn't it? That's why it's so appealing because we can have our cake and we can eat it too. We can acknowledge God and still live out of our own resources and for our own purposes as we then bargain with God based on our obedience. Hey, I've, I'm owed certain things because I've kept this new law that you gave me to keep. You see, as much as legalism might seem to be focused on outward things like our duty to God and our duty to our neighbor, yet the grounds and the motive of such thinking is always based around self. It's a flesh-centered religion by turning our faith and our hope back in on ourselves. And as Paul says here, with his metaphor of leaven, it can be very subtle in how it creeps in, can't it? Again, a a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, dear brothers and sisters, in the history of the church, it usually creeps in out of so-called practical concerns. Uh, Even with the Judaizers and with other legalistic heresies recorded in the pages of uh, the New Testament and as we see throughout church history, uh, with all of them, usually the apparent motive... Uh, for those teachings is a concern that the free grace of the gospel will lead to licentiousness. Remember, that, that was uh, one of the chief pole- polemics against Martin Luther and the early reformers. Well, if we believe what you're saying, people are just going to live any way they want. And so again, they, they always say we need to, to mix in a little works with our faith in matters of justification and our standing with God in order to keep people in line. And indeed, even from a personal level, uh, when you feel like you are struggling in certain areas of your Christian life and not making it ahead in the Christian life, or maybe if you're just looking for direction in life, uh, legalistic teachers can often seem to give you what you're looking for. That's why so many got pulled into Bill Gothard, right? So also, as I alluded to in the beginning, in our current cultural situation, we can especially feel tempted to follow neo Nomian teachers or teachers who present a diluted gospel because we can easily be drawn into all the righteous stands that they're taking within our culture. They might even glory in those stands, which should always be a red flag to you. If a, if a man is boasting in his fleshly accomplishments as a pattern of ministry, it's usually a sign that they may well be trusting in the flesh and preaching a deluded gospel. Uh, Just think about the Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it. What was the first teaching that led Christian astray on his journey to the celestial city? Well, it was the advice of Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who taught him that he could be free of his burden if he would simply leave the narrow path of faith and seek fellowship with Mr. Morality, Mr. Legality, and Mr. Civility. And with that, he promised him not only to be free of his burden, but he would have a life of happiness and social harmony amongst other good-natured religious people in this world if he would just go that way instead. And again, if you've read the book, what happens to Christian? He ends up finding himself scaling Mount Sinai so that it seems as if the mountain will fall over on top of him. In other words, he began to pursue a life of mere civil righteousness, departing from the simplicity of the gospel. And he came under the condemnation of the law. And again, the same thing can happen to us again, especially in our day and age where many culture warriors who promise us a better life in the here and now can turn our eyes away from Christ, though of course it is not wrong um, to want to live a sanctified life as we're going to see in our second main point. We must live a sanctified life. It's not wrong uh, to want to learn how we can order our families or have a godly influence on society. But if that ends up taking our eyes off Christ, especially if we've heard that advice from men who are now presenting us with a deluded gospel, then like Christian, we can find ourselves scaling Mount Sinai once again, so that we lose our assurance and wonder what happened to us. It can be subtle, and yet it can come upon us quickly. So this is why Paul admonishes the Galatians here and lays out a severe warning to those who promote such things. There in verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased." I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. So Paul here affirms his confidence in them. His confidence that, that they are truly in Christ. Which is what he means when he says there, I have confidence in you in the Lord. He, does, he doesn't trust again in their flesh He doesn't trust in them in and of themselves, he has confidence in them in the Lord, that they are in the Lord together, and he affirms, therefore, his confidence that in the end that they will not end up being turned away from their persuasion of the truths of the gospel. Uh, This shows us, as a side note of application, that that true Christians can fall into the legalistic neo nomian trap at times. Even for extended periods of times. I mean, think about the Galatians. It it apparently got so bad there, he had to take time to write a letter. And yet he had confidence that uh, they, as a body of Christ, largely, uh, were still in the Lord and would not fall away. You see, a true Christian will always come out of it because the Holy Spirit who has regenerated them and enlightened their mind, He he simply won't let them go. He won't let them go from the Gospel. Gospel. Again, that's something that we see over and over in the pilgrim's progress. Christian goes astray all the time, right? Uh, That's that's what keeps the narrative going. He, He ends up in all these little side traps. And yet the Lord is merciful and brings him back to the narrow path of faith. You see, true Christians can be subtly deceived, but they can never be lost. However, to reinforce the severity of this, Paul goes on to then pronounce judgment upon the Judaizers. He says, he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Uh, In other words, Paul says that this this little leaven uh, will be dealt with by God. And then he goes on to reaffirm his commitment to the Gospel regardless of the consequences, whether he was persecuted by the Romans or by the Jews and the Jewish Christians. He was willing to bear the reproach of the cross before them. And then he even goes on to pronounce a rather severe curse upon these Judaizers, saying, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. That was most likely a play of, on words related to their obsession with circumcision as sort of being the initiatory right into this works righteousness scheme that they were promoting. You see, because we are rooted in Christ by the Gospel, we must firmly reject the error of legalism while also fully resting in the Gospel of Christ. We must fully rest in the Gospel Of the imputation of our sin to Christ. And we must fully rest in the Gospel of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And we must fully rest in it as a legal forensic act that is done once for all and that is received by faith alone. Period. And that's a liberating truth, isn't it, dear church? That you are now righteous before God simply by the work of Christ as it's applied to you through the instrument of your faith. Your empty hand of faith. And yet that truth goes against the intuitions of the natural man. And so our flesh wants to diminish it. And there are teachers and heresies that will encourage us in that. And so a big part of the ministry of the church is to warn you about these things as we see Paul doing here. Of course, the reformers and the Puritans saw that this striving for the gospel would be an ongoing thing in the history of the church. That just as the whole Christian life is the battle of faith, that that so is also uh, what characterizes the history of the church. Because you see, the spirit of the Antichrist will never stop working in the church to diminish Jesus Christ and His finished work. And so if you encounter this teaching, if you encounter these sorts of teachings that diminish the free grace of the Gospel, if you find teachings and teachers that diminish uh, the burden that fell off your back when you first believed, then turn away from it. Or at least deeply consult with the Word of God And with the creeds and with the confessions and with the courts of the church, consult with your pastor in discerning whether or not you've encountered some leaven. Because as Paul warns here, this stuff doesn't come from the one who called you. And we are to run a good race. We are to persevere in the faith. And so creeds come before deeds. However, as Paul also goes on to say, our creed, which we firmly hold to, is also meant to be lived out in deeds. In verses 13 through 15, uh, he goes on to say this. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty As an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. So Paul, after uh, rooting us in the gospel and after uh, reminding us of our liberty in Christ, he now warns us against That other error, the error of antinomianism. And for those of you who aren't familiar, again, antinomianism is a Greek term. Anti means against, as I'm sure we all know. And again, namos means law. So to be an antinomian is to be against the law. In other words, an antinomian is someone who understands or thinks they do understand the free grace of the gospel, at least as it's preached. But rather than draw near to God while seeking to obey Him out of a sense of gratitude towards Him for the Gospel, the antinomian sees this as license to go their own way, thinking that they now have license from God to live in any way that they please. And so they are against God's law that commands them in how they are to live. And again, Paul warns against this kind of teaching. Yes, we are free from the law as a covenant of works. Meaning, we are free from the obligations and the threats of the law as it pertains to eternal life by the law. But we are not free from the law itself. In fact, as our theologians rightly teach, if God had never entered into a covenant of works with Adam in the garden, Adam still would have been bound to the moral law as God's creature. You see, the the covenant of works was an arrangement where God graciously condescended uh, to promise eternal life to Adam uh, based upon his keeping of the law, so that if Adam had obeyed, God would have been obligated within the covenant to confirm Him in eternal life and to glorify Him. So it wasn't a natural arrangement, it was a covenant arrangement. God owes us nothing by nature. It's sort of like, for an example, if you tell your kids to do the chores, right? Your children being your children, based on the fifth commandment, should do their chores. Yet if you then say, if you do your chores, we will have a pizza party tonight, if they do their chores, right, then you have obligated yourself to give them that pizza party. That's sort of like how we can understand the law and the covenant of works. And so our obligation as God's creatures to keep the law and to obey the law transcends the covenant of works, and it's therefore certainly an obligation in the covenant of grace, as Paul says there, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, to be clear, that word flesh there doesn't simply refer to the body, though it does. And we'll look, that, look at that a little bit more um, at the end of the month uh, when we preach in the following verses, or when we look at the following verses. Um, But instead, as one commentator puts it, uh, the flesh refers to, quote, the sum total of the impulses, urges, and desires that lead human beings away from virtue towards self-promotion and self-gratification, often at the expense of the interests and well-being of others. That's what the flesh is. In other words, Paul says here, uh, don't use your liberty to serve yourself Use it to serve God and to serve one another. As that's what we were created to do. And this is one of the reasons that God saved us. He saved us. He saved you to restore you to your purpose as God's creatures. To image God and to take dominion bearing that image. But I want us to pay particular attention to that statement there where he says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many commentators have debated exactly what Paul meant by this, specifically that all of the law is fulfilled by you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Is is this a reference to the moral law, uh, to the ceremonial law, to the civil laws? Is it a reference to all three of them? And if it's a reference to all three of them, how can love for neighbor, which is a horizontal motion, fulfill the obligations to worship and serve God, which is, again, a a vertical motion? What does Paul mean by that? Uh, Well, to to answer those questions, what, what Paul is most likely referring to here is indeed the moral law or the Ten Commandments. And he is most likely referring to the second table of the law as being the fruition of the first table of the law. In other words, he's saying, if you really do love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you will also love your neighbor as yourself. That is the, the termination right, of law-keeping. Love God, then love neighbor. If you're doing the first, you will do the second. And you will love them, you will love your neighbor, uh, not only because they bear the image of the God you love, but you will especially love them because they bear the image of the God who has loved you. And especially that latter statement, in light of the Gospel, that we love our neighbor because they bear the image of the God who loves us, Uh, that is really key to understanding how faith issues forth into love, as verse 6 said. You see, because God has lavished us with His eternal and unchanging love in Jesus Christ, uh, we no longer need to depend on others to fill us with love in order for us to give it back to them. As Christians who receive the love of God in Christ, our tanks ought to be overflowing with love, so to speak. As Ed Welch, uh, a Christian counselor, says in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, it's a great book if you struggle with the fear of man and and with other things. Uh, He says, the task God sets for us is to need others less and to love them more. Instead of looking for ways to manipulate others to get what we want, we will ask God what our duty is towards them. See, Uh, the first table of the law issues forth into the second, especially in light of the gospel. Uh, We can do this because we've been set at liberty, as Paul says, by God's love for us in Christ. God has freely loved us, and we know this by faith, and so we are now then free to love others and pattern our life according to the law of God. Or as John writes in 1 John 4.19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. You see, we don't need to love in order to gain eternal life, nor do we need to love in order to keep eternal life, any more than we need to keep the law in order to gain and keep eternal life. Yet, because we do have eternal life, it must, therefore, issue forth into love. Christ kept the law, law of love in our place, and He shed His love upon us, And so being united to Him as His people, we are to be imbued with the law of love, being imbued with His own love. This means that we can't be antinomian Christians. We can't be those who live for the flesh any more than we can be those who trust in the flesh, as we considered in our first point. So our sincere creed or our sincere faith in Christ must lead to a life of sincere deeds or to a life that sincerely reflects the law of Christ. And so Paul says here that we must not live for the flesh because we are called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, especially thinking of the church, loving one another, especially the household of God. And I want you to notice something here with this. Notice that as he is admonishing the Galatians here for this issue, that it seems that he isn't quite as severe in dealing with this issue as he was in dealing with legalism. Now yes, Paul warns the Galatians that there will be destructive ramifications if they do not obey this command. As he says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Uh, You as the church will destroy yourselves so that there's no longer a church if you do not hear my warning here, yet he doesn't pronounce an anathema on them, nor does he use the strong language that he uses throughout the book against the Judaizers. No, he admonishes them here with a strong warning, because this is a matter of pastoral concern. In other words, it's not clear there were antinomian teachers in their midst like there were legalistic teachers But Paul had a pastoral concern for them. That they could swing in the other direction. In other words, just as true Christians can be sucked into legalism, so true Christians can also misapprehend the Gospel to mean that it doesn't matter how they live. Or at least, yeah, maybe some major sins I don't commit, but I don't really struggle with holiness. No, that's not what the Gospel encourages us in. Now, in other parts of the New Testament, strong language is indeed used against antinomian teachers. Thinking of the book of James. Thinking of the letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation. But the New Testament, even in Romans, often assumes that once we get the Gospel right, some people are going to fall off in this other direction. And indeed, if antinomianism is formally taught or adhered to, it becomes more than just a lack of sanctification. It becomes a dangerous and deadly heresy. In fact, in the classic work, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, which is a post-Reformation work on the, the proper understanding of the gospel and how people were wrestling with that post-Reformation, uh, the main character, Evangelista, has a conversation with a character named Anti-Nomista, who is an antinomian. And Anti-Nomista articulates his faith in such a way uh, that he says he rejoices now because the gospel tells him that he doesn't need to feel guilty about his sin anymore. And Evangelista responds to this saying, to tell you truly, I make some question whether you have truly believed in Christ for all your confidence. Indeed, I am rather moved to question it. Uh, the Gospel does not teach that you no longer need to repent of your sin or feel guilty of, about your sin when you commit it. Uh, sure, when you repent, when you turn from it, you can move on in, free, in freedom, receiving uh, justification, that, that truth receiving forgiveness from God, but that doesn't mean that you can be lighthearted about sin, especially when you find sins of commission and omission within yourself. And so again, Evangelista says, based on how you understand your faith, I don't know if you've truly believed in Christ. You see, your fathers in the faith saw antinomianism, again, not simply as a lack of sanctification, though it can be that, an antinomian-type lifestyle, but the teaching of it they saw as a dangerous heresy. And in our culture of lawlessness, and in our culture of self-love, this is also a very real danger for Christians. Antinomianism. Sadly, people often respond to things like abuse, and the despair that ensues with various forms of legalism and legalistic movements by swinging in the opposite direction towards antinomian self-care and self-love. This is something that you see in a lot of circles that support those who have legitimately been victims of these things. And they can quickly turn their deconstructed new understanding of the free grace of the gospel into a warmed-over message of self-acceptance. God has poured out his love and free grace upon me in Christ, so now I can just accept myself just as I am and live free in Christ, as they say. Of course, uh, the LGBTQ affirming movement within the church is largely motivated by this type of self-love, self-care, antinomianism. And we're surrounded by that in our culture, aren't we? We live in a culture of Marxism where it's all oppressors versus the oppressed, where oppressed victims are to expect a lot from others and very little from themselves. And so everyone wants to find themselves a victim. And those who compromise with the culture in the church often drift into this sort of antinomianism. I'm now free in Christ, um, and I can just love myself as I am. The Gospel frees me from all this oppression. And so beware, dear believer, you can quickly and instinctually turn the Gospel in both ways into something that's warped in on yourself. You see, our faith must issue forth into love for God, as expressed in love for others. Or we will find ourselves going in the other direction where we bite and devour and consume one another out of our hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions and dissensions. All the things that Paul is going to warn about in the verses that come next. You see, the problem with um, antinomianism and neonomianism is not that they're unbalanced, so that maybe the solution is that we should find some halfway ground between them. No, it doesn't work that way. It's that they are both rooted in the flesh. They are rooted either in a trust in the flesh, which is legalism, or they are rooted in an indulgence of the flesh, which is antinomianism. And you see, dear church, we put both of these things to death, by wholly trusting in Christ, by repenting of our self-righteousness and by uh, looking away from ourselves to Christ alone, and then by looking to the Lord and, and by looking to the Lord's people and considering how we might love and serve the Lord and love and serve one another in response to what God has done for us. And so next time at the end of the month when we continue through Galatians 5, Uh, We will flesh this out further by looking at matters of sanctification and how being united to Christ, we are now called to mortify our flesh and walk in step with the Spirit. And we'll look at what all that means and some practical advice on how to walk and live in that way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you that you are faithful to us, that you have given us your word that makes clear what it is you have done for us and what it is that you require of us. We know that it's a narrow path that we are called to, uh, that we can waver to the left and to the right onto the broad path that leads to destruction. And very often we have found ourselves wavering in our Christian life. And yet very often we have seen You pick us up by Your Spirit, by Your providence, by the conviction of Your Word, and You've brought us back to the path of looking to Your Son alone for salvation, divesting ourselves of our filthy rags before You, embracing the Gospel just as we are embraced by You in the Gospel. And Lord, we have seen You continue to work in our hearts, granting us an increase affection for you and for the church and for one another and even for the lost as we see the, the grace you've poured out on us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen your work of grace within us. We pray that we would remain rooted in your Son by faith, that we would remain rooted uh, in the week ahead, uh, that we would remain rooted as we Drink in the means of grace in our private devotions, in our praying without ceasing, in our family devotions. And we pray again that we would not use our liberty as an excuse for licentiousness, but that we would use our liberty to think upon how we might serve you, serve our families, serve our fellow Christians. Uh, serve our neighbors, and, and serve even outsiders who oppose you. Lord, keep us rooted in your Son, and keep us, we pray, on the straight and narrow, for we ask all of these things in the name of your Son. Amen.